Would you turn with me to the 15th chapter of the book of Mark? We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Mark 15, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this morning and to be a part of this wonderful time of worship that we have had and the singing of these beautiful songs. Thank you, Jonathan. And one song just keeps sticking in my mind, hallelujah, what a Savior, amen, amen. And we're very grateful, I'm very grateful and encouraged by being with such a congregation that is so devoted to Christ and loves the Lord and loves the Word of God. And it's really encouraging and uplifting to me to be a part of the worship here every time we come together. I encourage you to be back with us tonight, 6 o'clock. We'll come together and we'll study the second chapter of the book of Colossians. Well, right now I want to talk about a, an event in the life of the Lord that I'd like to make application. If you study these details carefully, it almost causes a righteous indignation to rise up within you. When you see how that they took advantage of Jesus and you see how that they tried their very best to mock him and, and persecute him, now leading him before Pilate, binding him, the chief priests doing what they can to rail against him very harshly. Jesus, as the Old Testament prophet foretold was like a lamb before his shearers is dumb. He was very quiet and did not protest with regard to the matter. It almost causes one to think of, uh, you know, how terrible it was to treat someone this way and the Son of God to be treated this way. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then you realize they bound the hands of Jesus and led him away and ultimately to be crucified and then buried and raised from the dead. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a great story and a true story, just as it is revealed for us in the pages of the New Testament. I just wonder, though, in a figurative way, though I was not there, you were not there, and I believe it happened just like the Bible says it happened, are we guilty of binding the hands of Jesus? I just wonder sometimes, in a figurative sense, in the way we live and what we fail to do, are we binding the hands of Jesus? If I could have the next slide, I wanted to present to you these five points. I always hesitate to let you know ahead of time how many points I want to talk about. Because I think every time I do that, somebody's thinking, oh no, he'll speak forever. But I promise not to do that. Uh, but I just couldn't stop making the points when I was thinking about these particular matters about binding the hands of Jesus. And am I guilty of doing that? 
Am I, and not in a literal sense, of course, in a figurative sense, am I guilty of doing that? And I thought, well, I'll just give you all five points in the beginning, and you can see them and study them and think about them as I go through them one at a time, and I promise I'll be brief. I bind the hands of Jesus every time I refuse to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. This is the only way. This is the only way that God has given us for the forgiveness of sin and redemption. It's all we have. Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. It is because of the great love of God that we have the gospel of Jesus Christ to begin with. He tells us very plainly and clearly, it's only through the gospel. I am the way. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Hebrews chapter 14 and verse 6. And all these beautiful expressions are expressions of we have to accept this plan. Otherwise, if we don't, there's no other plan for us to accept. And there's no other way for us to go in order to have access to God. And if I refuse this, I am in a sense binding the hands of Jesus to help me. There's no other way. There's no other plan that God has in motion for the salvation of mankind. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5 and 1. And that whole point comes out of a discussion of being justified by an obedient faith. And he's saying, now this is how we can have peace with God. It's through this obedient faith that Abraham had, Romans chapter 4. And if I reject that, if I'm going to say no to that, I've got no other way available to me. I am, in a sense, binding the hands of Jesus to save me. He can't save me. He's not going to save me. There's no other way that it can happen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. I think there's a point here that needs to be considered carefully. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is at Capernaum. He's really at Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin and Bethsaida are suburbs of Capernaum. Beautiful city, Capernaum. And there, as you go to Chorazin and Bethsaida, Capernaum, Jesus did all these miracles. And I thought, well, let me just write down a couple of the miracles that Jesus did in that area. He had healed the nobleman's son. Why, the paralytic was healed. The person with the demon possession was healed. In fact, there were two. One that was struck dumb and could not speak, and he was healed, and another demon possession he was healed of the demon. Peter's mother-in-law was healed in this area. The centurion's servant was healed. Jairus' daughter was healed. The woman with an issue of blood. It goes on and on and on with all the miracles, the wonderful miracles which Jesus did in the region of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, Matthew eleven twenty, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were the enemies of, enemies of Israel. Now, if the enemies of Israel had seen what you saw, they would have repented. But it didn't stop there. 
He said, Have they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes? Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be descended to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You've bound the hands of Jesus and you wouldn't accept him and you wouldn't repent and he can't save you. But now if the enemies had seen this, you know the term Sodom is a term which generates all kinds of sin and debauchery and and wickedness. If the enemies had seen this, if Sodom had seen this, they would have repented. But what about you? If you've heard the gospel and heard the gospel, but you don't obey the gospel, are you not, in a sense, binding the hands of Jesus to help you? And Jesus says, I, I did these mighty miracles here in your presence so that you could see that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you could come to me out of obedient faith. But you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't repent. And you wouldn't come. He couches in that particular matter this statement, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the yoke, or the teaching, which is what the yoke refers to here, was easy compared to Pharisees and Sadducees. And all the myriad laws and commands that they had generated from their own mind that they laid on top of the Word of God, and they were forcing upon the people, if you will take my word, it's easy compared to their teaching. But easy also in the sense that it's fitting and proper and will get the job done. The teachings of man, such as Pharisees and Sadducees, will not prevail. It will not help you. It will not give you what you need, spiritually speaking. But the teaching of Christ will. It will be fitting. It is proper. It is easy. Not only in the sense of being easier than what Pharisees were trying to force upon them, but also fitting in the sense that it will get the job done. But if you don't do this, if you're not going to obey the gospel, and you refuse to do it, you're binding the hands of Jesus to help you. You'll not be able to change your life for what is right because you've decided, no, I will not obey the gospel of Christ. Have you been guilty of binding the hands of Jesus? Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But you said no to them. You're binding the hands of Jesus to help you. Now, Pharisees, Romans, Sadducees bound the hands of Jesus and led him away to be crucified. But in a figurative sense, I can do the same thing. By refusing the teaching of Jesus on the salvation of my soul. It is the gospel that saves us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it has commands that must be obeyed. The commands that must be obeyed with regard to the gospel are to repent of sin. A point I want to make here in a moment. But one must confess faith and be baptized into Christ. Immersed in waters. Like Peter said to the household of Cornelius, I command you to be baptized. Acts chapter 10 verse 48. It was a command. Like Peter would say, 1 Peter 3 and 21. Baptism doth also now save us. 
not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Isn't that a great verse? It really helps us understand that important element. Faith is just as important as baptism. Repentance is just as important as baptism. All these matters are to be followed completely, faithfully, in order to receive what we need the most, and that's forgiveness of sin. But if I say no to that, I'm binding the hands of Jesus to help me. And there's no other help available. This is it. And I must comply. But I, if I refuse to change my life, and I put the word transform there, if I refuse to be transformed in life, then in turn I'm binding the hands of Jesus to help me. All that say I've been baptized into Christ, and we understand that the Lord adds to his church those who have been obedient to the gospel. But then my life in Christ seems to quit. Now I just keep on doing all the things I've always done, and I'm the kind of person that I've always been, and I refuse to be transformed. And I see that a lot. I, I can see where some people who have been Christians for many years, but they've never allowed the Word of God to transform their life. And if I don't allow that to happen, I'm in a sense binding the hands of Jesus to help me. Because that's the method and the means whereby my life is going to be improved and it's going to be changed properly for God. Now notice in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, it's one of my favorite verses. It's my favorite chapter uh, in the Bible about the Christian life. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, transform your life. And read that from Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he's emphasizing the importance there of living a different kind of life. Now that I'm a child of God, I'm living a different kind of life. I don't live the life that I always lived before. So many times a person is baptized into Christ, but their life doesn't change. And it's almost as if they put their mind on neutral. Okay, I did what I had to do. I've got my ticket punched. That's all I need to do as far as being a child of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is teaching me that if I don't change my life in keeping with the Word of God, then I'm really binding the hands of Jesus to save me and to help me. I'd like to turn to a passage which... Uh, think about quite a bit, and it's Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's that uh, practical section of the book of Ephesians. You hear me mention that quite often, that Paul has a doctrinal section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and a practical section, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in the beginning of that practical section, he uses this metaphor about walking, and you've heard me talk about that on numerous occasions. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now that chapter 4 verse 1 is a good verse to understand as he jumps off into this Christian living discussion of the second half of the book of Ephesians. He talks about walking or living the Christian life day by day. But he uses a word here, worthy. Walk worthy of the calling. Let your life be taken as seriously as the calling that you obeyed is serious. And the calling that you obeyed, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, is the Word of God. We are called 
through the Word of God. We are called to obey the gospel through God's written Word. He said, now, as serious as that word is, let your life be serious, worthy. Some translations will have worthily. I think this worthy probably is a better way to express it. And he's saying in this passage, let your life be as worthy as the gospel. And we know how important that is. Therefore, let my life be so transformed as to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm not quite through with Ephesians chapter 4, as I want to study a little further about this particular matter. And I come to about verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of, the, of deceit. Now, verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Great verse, isn't it? Talking about being transformed. Put away the old self. And put on the new self. Be transformed. The only way you're going to do that is to study God's Word. And study it in such a way that you apply it to your life. Now I can come away and study everything there is to study about the background of the Bible. I can know all the customs. I can know all the ways of the people of the first century. I can know all of the language, everything there is to know about the language of the New Testament. I can conjugate all the verbs, decline all the nouns, and know the meanings of every word that's found in the New Testament. But if I do not apply that to my life, it will do me no good. I have got to transform my life. How this Bible is given to us to read and study, and quite frankly... It takes every bit of the intellectual ability that I have to get down into the Bible. It's going to take everything I've got mentally to understand it as best I possibly can. So it's, it's a lifelong study, isn't it, to really study and come to learn and know the Word of God. But if I don't apply it, if I don't let the Word of God speak to me personally and say, Jim, you need to be doing this, or Jim, you need to stop doing this, because this is what the Word of God says. If I never make that point, if I never reach that level of understanding, what good is it going to do me? I've seen a lot of commentaries, and I would think that this man is right on. He is spot on with regard to his understanding of this passage. So why isn't he a member of the church? Or this particular writer is writing a book upon a particular biblical issue, and I'm thinking, that guy is exactly right. So why isn't he a member of the church? He's not a member of the church because he didn't apply it to himself. He didn't let his life be transformed in keeping with what the Word of God has to say. Now you and I can read it and read it and read it and know everything about it. We could memorize the Scripture, know everything about the New Testament and memorize large sections of the Word of God, which I'm for that. But if you don't let it transform your life, you're binding the hands of Jesus to help you. It's not going to be the help it was meant to be. It's not simply an academic pursuit. It's to help me change and to be more like Jesus 
the perfect example. Perfect example. I can bind the hands of Jesus today, not literally, but figuratively, by my refusal to pray. I believe in prayer. I believe that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I believe that Jesus is our high priest today, who hears my petitions and who hears my prayers. Turn with me to a couple of passages of Scripture I'd like for you to read today, and it's found for me in Hebrews chapter 2, is one of those great passages of Scripture. It's a passage which is talking about Jesus being our high priest and how that connects with the matter of prayer. I pray to Christ, through Christ, to God, through Christ to God, and I'm praying through Christ as my high priest. And I guess of all the books of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is really expressing the matter of Christ being our high priest, the go-between between us and God. Now, every child of God is a priest. And the Bible makes very clear over and over again about the priesthood of believers. But we pray through Christ Jesus and If I don't pray to Christ, look at how I'm binding the hands of Jesus to help me. Look at how I'm limiting him. He wants to help, but I won't pray because I don't see the need in it, and I don't see the importance of it. And when I feel that way, that I refuse to talk through my high priest to God, then what am I doing but binding his hands to help? Now I'm in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, you'll find a couple of passages here, and I may just stay right here for a while in this great book of the Bible. It's got to be one of my favorite books. In Hebrews chapter 2, you have verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now there's a great word, and we've talked about it on a number of occasions, propitiation. Instead of seeing the sin, God sees the blood, because the propitiation has been made as a covering for my sin. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. But if I don't ever go to God in prayer through Christ to ask for help, am I not binding the hands of Jesus and binding the hands of God to help me in the wonderful way that he can help? Let's read on. I'm in Hebrews chapter 4. And in Hebrews chapter 4, you come to about verse 14. And I read more about the significance of the high priest which I have in Christ Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let's be truthful and honest and sincere in our conviction to live for Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, verse 15, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what's his point other than supplication and prayer? Because we have this high priest and because he is in the situation and position that he's in, we have the opportunity and the privilege as children of God to boldly go before the throne of grace to receive the blessings which God has in store for us. But and if I don't pray, I'm binding his hands. 
I'm not giving him the opportunity to help me. He wants to help me, but yet I don't pray to him, and I don't believe in the fine art of prayer. What shall we make of that? I'm binding the hands of Jesus to help. Now I'm in Hebrews chapter 7. This point about Jesus being the high priest is a very prominent theme throughout the course of this particular book. And I find myself in a very, I don't know, a passage that I really enjoy reading in this context. I'm going to start about verse 23. I'm in Romans 7. The former priests on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Every under the Old Testament regime, they would have a New Testament, I mean an Old Testament priest come up, live and die, and another priest would come up and live and die, and he could not stay there in that office because he was human, and he died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is a permanent high priest, and I don't have to be concerned about a new high priest coming up with the old high priest passing away because of the permanent nature of the priesthood of Christ. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives, and he never dies. And he always lives to make intercession for the people of God as they pray to God through him. What if I don't pray? Am I not binding the hands of Jesus to help me? No, not in a literal way. In a figurative way. And that's a travesty for me to fail as a Christian in this regard. I don't pray like I ought. When I do pray, if I do pray, I just pray memorized platitudes that have been said over and over again that don't come from the depth of my heart because they came from the roof of my mouth and they don't get any higher than the ceiling because all I said was a lot of memorized little statements that sound very religious but really don't come from my heart. It's a travesty that we pray from the heart sincerely according to the divine word of God, scripturally, asking God's blessings to help us. And I'll tell you something that should be involved in every child of God's prayer is thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for all your blessings. You blessed us in physical ways. You blessed us in spiritual ways. I thank you for the air I breathe, for the clothes I wear, for the food I eat, for the house in which I live. I thank you for all your blessings that you've given me. I thank you for the spiritual blessings that I live in grace. And I continue to live being covered and cleansed by the blood of Christ as I walk in the light. 1 John 1 and verse 7. And I'm thankful that you've blessed me and you care for me and you see after me. you provided for me. We ought to be down on our knees seven times every day thanking God in prayer for all that He's done. But if I don't pray, what a travesty. I'm binding the hands of Jesus, the one who really ever lives to make intercession for His people, Hebrews chapter 7. But yet I never call on Him. I never go before the throne of grace and mercy because I fail to pray. 
I am binding the hands of Jesus. I bind the hands of Jesus when I'm not willing to do my part in the church of the living God. I want to talk about that point. When I was baptized into Christ, I was added to the church of the living God. I was a part of the church. But I don't do my part. I might come when the occasion arises, but I never take part. I'm never really connected with the body of the local congregation. Never really a part of it. Turn with me to one of my favorite statements on this matter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Though there are many statements with regard to Jesus and the church, he's the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and many wonderful Bible passages along that line. But I choose to study for a brief moment to substantiate the point at hand in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I really want to work my way down to verse 27. But when I get in these chapters, you know, I want to talk about, man, this is what he's talking about. This is what he has in mind. And he's leading up to this great point. And one of the points that we see here is verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. I want to tell you something, verse 13, and there are a number of passages related to that. Thanks be to God. The door of the church is open to all who will repent and obey the gospel. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether Jew or Greek. Paul, in one instance, would say, Scythian, barbarian. You could be on the lowest rung of the ladder socially, the poorest person in the community, and the door of faith is open to you. If you'll obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's his point in verse 13. You're part of the body. And then he begins to talk about the body. He's talking about how it connects up with the eye and the hand and the foot. And, And he's making a couple of points there. And one of the points that he makes in that paragraph as I work my way through this is that he's saying, you know, one can't think of himself more important than the other. All of us are important. All of us are part of the body. And none of us should look down on the other person Uh, for being a part of the body. We just shouldn't do that because we're all contributing to the body. We all take part in the body. And then another point that he's making there in this particular metaphor of head and body and how it relates to each other is the cooperative, cohesive nature of the body. The hand can't go one way and the other hand go another. Why this body is working together from the dictates of the head, which is Christ, again, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. We follow the teaching of Christ in the pages of the New Testament. And there's a type of cohesiveness there. There's a type of unity there whereby we're all working together for the same goal and for the same principle. But if I don't do my part in the body, which is where he's getting at in verse 25, so that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, the unity and the cohesiveness, if I don't do my part in the body, then I am in a sense binding the hands of Jesus. I'm not cooperating. I'm not part of it. I'm not in a unified way working for the goal and the purpose of the local congregation. I'm just not a part of it. 
And it's almost as if some brethren have this standoffish type of attitude. Well, I've been baptized, and I don't need to be involved in the work of the local congregation. That's not what I read here. What I'm reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and a number of other passages that could be cited is the idea of people, sinners, who have repented of their sins and been baptized into Jesus Christ, working and worshiping together for the strength of the local congregation. That's part of the mutual edification and help God has in store for me. He's helping me through the local congregation. He's helping me. He's edifying me. He's building me up. I spoke a moment ago about that beautiful hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. It's hard for me to even sing that because of the wonderful concept that's involved in those words because of how I know they gender such Bible passages to my mind and, and what I understand them to be. But yet, if I don't take part in the work and the worship of the local congregation, I am denying the help that God has in store for me by means of the mutual edification. And what, in a sense, I'm saying is, I don't need you. I don't need you, and I don't want you. I don't want to be a part of the local congregation. But God provides help for me through that local congregation, the mutual edification which God has in mind. God's helping me and strengthening me and encouraging me and helping me see here's a way to help you through the hardships of life, through the handicaps that you happen to face, to overcome the struggles and the sufferings that you face. And I'll tell you what else, in a more practical way. When you don't participate, that means others have to do double duty. When you don't participate, that means others have to pick up where you will not pick up and go. And do. You're binding the hands of Jesus. And you're saying, I'm not going to be part of the local car. I'm not going to be part of the work. Don't need it. That's not what I read in the pages of the New Testament. I read of people who worked and worshipped together. Who helped each other through the difficult days of life. And you know what they're doing? They're helping each other go to heaven. By the songs that they sing, by the prayers that they pray by the Bible that they teach, by the encouragement that they offer. God knew we needed this. Christ died for this. And I have been added to it by my faithful obedience to the gospel of Christ. And I want it to grow. I want it to grow stronger. I want it to be a city set on a hill that when people come up they see a light, a light of truth, a light of purity, a light of holy living, whereby people come along and say, see how they love one another. I want to be a part of that. But if you're not doing your part, you're binding the hands of Jesus. And you're really not doing your part in the work of the church. You see, a person can, in a figurative way, bind the hands of Jesus. And I promised you five points. And here's the fifth. We're binding the hands of Jesus when we fail to tell others about the gospel of Christ. 
I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest message that man can hear. I believe that when somebody says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's the greatest statement that he'll ever make in his life. That more and more people need to be making it. In the book of Acts, you see one conversion after another. And how did those conversions take place? This one taught that one the Word of God. And this one understood the gospel plan of salvation. He wanted to help that other person understand it. So he told him about it or her about it. You see it happening over and over again. In Acts chapter 3, you have that great day, or 2, you have that great day of Pentecost where some 3,000 obeyed the gospel. But let's kind of thumb through the book of Acts for a moment. I have another minute or two. Let's do that just for a second. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. In verse 4, Luke tells us, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. They were hearing the gospel message, and they saw the need to obey it. Turn the page. Go over there to about verse, chapter 5, verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were continually added to their number. They're growing. The church is growing, and they're telling people about the gospel of Christ, and people are obeying it. I'm in verse 28, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. That's the Jews saying this. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, what had they been doing? They've been teaching and teaching and teaching. And, and now one heard the word of God, and that one made another one a Christian, and this one took the word and made another one, and that person a Christian. Now I'm in chapter 6. I could go all the way through the book of Acts and look at how one after another people were making Christians by teaching the word of God to others. Verse 7, the word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 6 and the verse of verse 7. Well, I would like, I enjoy studying the Bible that way, going through a book and picking out the common threads that are found throughout the course of the book. And this is one of the common threads in the course of this book, the book of Acts. This Christian made that Christian. And you know what happened? Persecution came upon the church. Did that stop Christianity? No. The truth was on the march, and it couldn't be stopped. And that persecuted Christian made that persecuted Christian. And that persecuted Christian made that one a Christian. And it just went from person to person to person. But if I refuse, am I not binding the hands of Jesus? Am I not saying, no, I'm not going to be a part of that? And there, as they would go along the way, the conversation would work around toward the point about one's responsibility to obey the gospel of Christ, and it was brought up. The early church grew because they were aggressive in teaching salvation's message to lost people. And I have to ask myself the question, what are we doing? Are we binding the hands of Jesus here? Because we will not teach others the Word of God. We have friends, we have neighbors, we have associates, we have all kinds of people that we influence. Are we going to bind the hands of Jesus or are we going to influence them to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ before it is too late? Yes.
we can bind the hands of Jesus. Now somebody say, well, I would never bind the hands of Jesus. I don't mean in a literal way, but we can do it spiritually by our failure. And we need to improve. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, I admonish you to do that today. I plead with you to become a child of God. If you understand sufficiently so about what it means to be baptized into Christ and to repent of sin and to be added to the church, if you understand the New Testament about that matter, then let's do that today. Let's immerse you in water for the remission of your sins. If you've been unfaithful to the cause of Christ, let's repent of that today. If you've come to understand the need of changing your life for what is right, I urge you to do it now. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?